Hello, financial feminists. Welcome back. Happy to see you. We're talking all things credit cards today with a former Visa credit expert and a fellow female founder and CEO. Now, if credit cards feel a little scary to you and you heard me intro this episode and you're already like, nope, I'm out. You're not alone. I invite you to stay. If you have come from a Dave Ramsey background, if you have come from a background that has said that debt is bad, that credit cards are bad, here's the deal. You are an adult and I'm going to treat you like an adult. Credit cards are not the devil. Credit cards are not evil. In fact, they're a really great tool if you use them responsibly. And whether we like it or not, credit scores specifically, but also credit cards are a necessary part of our life, a necessary part of our finances, and we need to learn how to use them responsibly as well as any pitfalls that we're currently falling into. So we talked all about credit scores last season, how to increase your score, what makes up a credit score. So if you haven't listened to that episode, it's episode seven, please go back, listen to that one first. It'll give you a really good baseline in order to listen and fully absorb today's episode. Okay, I've talked about it before, and I mention it again in the episode today, that I actually don't even own a debit card. I never have. My parents don't own debit cards. I pay all of my bills, and I spend exclusively on a credit card. Here's what that does for me. One, it's secure. Credit card companies have some of the best fraudulent protection available, and it's easy to report if I believe a purchase has been double charged or if I think my credit card got stolen. I also reap the benefits of all of these cards. So whether that's reward points, free miles, cash back, I get all of those points possible because I'm putting everything, every purchase I have on a credit card. I also love using the travel specific credit cards for perks like lounge access at airports, free upgrades on flights, sometimes even free flights. The third thing is that using a credit card helps me build my credit score, which yes, unfortunately, you actually do need one of those in order to function in society. We have all of our credit card recommendations linked in our show notes. And we'll talk again about how to use your credit card responsibly as we go throughout this episode. The education most of us get on credit is lacking. You've probably heard some myths like you have to keep a balance to have a good score, which is not true. And today's guest is here to demystify the credit industry and to help you make smarter choices with your money. Now, I want to state something very clearly. I've already said it a couple times in this intro, but we are talking about credit cards as a tool. And like every tool in your toolbox, you have to use it smart. You have to use it correctly in order for it to work well and to keep yourself from getting hurt. I kind of think of it like a knife, right? A knife can cut you. It can also make you a yummy veggie stir fry. And credit cards, we want to, I don't know, make us a yummy veggie stir fry. The metaphor doesn't fully track, guys. It's Just stay with me. Okay, before you begin using credit cards or if you're currently paying down credit card debt, I need you to do a few things first. One, you need to have an emergency fund of at least three months in a high-yield savings account. The last thing I want for you to do is to dive into debt when you lose your job or your water heater goes out or you get a flat tire, right? The second thing is you need to have a budget. It can be a spreadsheet, shameless plug. We have a great one called the Badass Budget that is pre-automated for you to plug and play, link in our show notes, or even an app on your phone. But you need to know how much is coming and going each month so you can know exactly how much you can spend on your credit card without going into debt. We have more about emergency funds, more about setting up budgets, more about financial goals on episode five called the financial game plan. 
again, we have all these resources for you. Please go back and listen to that one. As a special bonus for Financial Feminist listeners, get 10% off the Badass Budget spreadsheet with the code FFBUDGET. That's FFBUDGET. You can learn more about this and other personal finance tools and courses at herfirst100k.com slash products. Again, linked in the show notes. You should only be using credit cards if you can pay off the entire balance every single month. You need to be making on time and in full payments, meaning that you're not allowing the date to go by without submitting a credit card payment. And you're also not just paying the minimum balance, you're paying the full balance. Okay, back to the episode. Vrinda Gupta is the CEO of Sequin, a debit card and credit builder with rewards that pay back the pink tax in categories where women spend. She's a globally recognized credit expert with experience building credit cards at Visa and has an MBA from UC Berkeley School of Business. Vrinda lives in San Francisco, California, and is a proud first-generation Indian immigrant. Today's episode is incredibly informative. You're going to learn the ins and outs of the credit card industry and how women like Vrinda are turning this traditional patriarchal stronghold into a system that benefits women. Enjoy. I would love for you to tell me kind of your story about being especially one of the people who built the Chase Sapphire Rewards Guard and then you got rejected for it. So even before then, like what was your journey and your career to getting to that point? Yeah. So as quick background, I started my career at Visa. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even before that, my family and I are first generation immigrants mm. and I grew up watching my mom, who is my superhero, and I I don't feel like she's afraid of anything. <laughs> but the one piece was always a financial system. Yeah. And so growing up, I would watch her rely on my dad in just this only in this one area. Yeah. Um, and so to me, you know, it became very important to understand the financial system and especially credit in the U.S., and, you know, my mom's view was always, there are a lot of gotchas, you can get into debt, you can make one mistake, and, and you know, that can carry on throughout your life, and, and she's not wrong. Right. Um, and so when I decided to think about what I wanted to do after, my, after I graduated, going into financial services was a lot more than just a job. It was a way to empower myself in the system and a way to, you know, really help my mom as well. Yeah. And so started off at Visa, um, worked on the credit cards team for a few years and built a very popular product called the Chase Sapphire Reserve. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm a member. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that um, that is a card that I was the main PM for on the Visa side. And it was a really exciting project to work on something like that where you know, it blew up immediately. And I think for the first time, we really saw young people being catered to and, you know, things being thought of differently. Yeah. Um, and of course, I, like everyone else, wanted that product. And, and I wanted to start off, you know, building my credit. I wanted to get a product that could give me travel rewards, et cetera. Um, and it really was this kind of symbol of financial independence for me. Yeah. And I applied for the card and I got rejected when I was at work. In an open you for floor the card plan. that you built and then were rejected. Did they give you a reason behind that rejection? I mean, that's the worst part of it, right? When you get rejected, all you see, it's it's this instant rejection. Right, it's a yes or a no. Two weeks later in the mail, you get this kind of generic, 
you know, letter that says, well, it could be one of these four reasons. Mm-hmm. And and later on, I learned it was because my debt to income ratio, which now I understand what that means. Right. Um, but at that point, I had no idea, right? I was a new grad. I was just getting on my feet. Yeah. And so, and I, and I think the piece that I felt the worst about was that credit felt like a very important test and no mm. one had taught me how to study for it. Yeah. And so when I applied and I got rejected, I said, had I known, I would have been building my credit and I just didn't. Right. Um, and, you know, ultimately what I realized was that I had been spending primarily on a debit card and I'd been spending on my dad's credit card, which I thought was building my credit, but it really was building his credit more effectively than mine. Right. And so even though I had a high income, the credit decisioners don't really take that into account. And so I applied, I lacked credit history and I got rejected. Mm. And so that was, you know, kind of the beginning of me starting to think about credit in the industry for the first time. And, and, you know, just realizing that if this was something that was impacting me, as someone who was actually building these products and writing the rules for these products, <laughs> you know, what was happening to so many other people? And that led right. me down a long rabbit hole of, you know, realizing that the system truly was not designed to center women, but really anyone outside of this prototypical heteronormative. Cisgender white male. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you said the words debt to income ratio. Can you explain for my listeners what that means? Absolutely. Yeah. So your debt to income ratio is basically how much a creditor is willing to give you in relation to your income. And so essentially at that point, in addition to my income, I hadn't built up credit. And so the amount of debt that an issuer was willing to give me was not not proportionate to the amount that they were willing to. Because they're basically, they're like kind of placing, not a bet, but they're saying like, hey, we're trying to figure out how responsible you are, right? And the likelihood that you will pay something back. So they're they're coming up with kind of this arbitrary number. And you can tell me if it's not so arbitrary, but like seemingly arbitrary number of like how much they're willing to bet on you or how much they're like the flexibility they're willing to give you. And so it's it sounds like for you, it was less about like, your income or how much salary you were making and more the fact that you had not built credit up to that point. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. And I mean, ultimately, it does come out to this number, which is your credit score, right? right but there's right. so much more to it than meets the eye. So I'm excited to talk about all of that. Yeah. But it really is this black box that, you know, credit affects every aspect of your life and every single goal that we have as people, as women, as whoever, is usually tied to a financial goal that is usually tied to credit. Yep. And so what I always like to say is your credit score is the only grade that matters after mm. you graduate mm-hmm. because... I say it's your adulting GPA. Yeah. That, exactly. I yep. love that. Yeah. Because um, every, I mean, you need credit for literally everything and even things you don't think about. Like right. sometimes if you go to apply for a job, your employer actually might Which pull is your a, credit. some bullshit, in my opinion. Exactly. But, yeah. I mean, that's a whole, a whole, a whole other concept. I don't know. Maybe that's a conversation we'll yeah, get into today. We but should. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, yeah. so credit is, is you know, Getting central to everything. To rent, trying to buy a house, buying a car, opening a credit card. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, anytime you need a loan, anytime you need to borrow something, your credit right. score, credit history is going to come into that. And so, um, you know, making sure that, that, that you're good gives you the options right. in life to be able to to pursue whatever huge goals that you have for yourself. Yeah. Well, and in previous interviews, you've mentioned, 
and of course it's obvious once you do a second of digging that the credit card industry caters to men, specifically cisgendered straight white men, right? And that there's so much implicit bias kind of baked into this industry. I just want to talk more about that. So when you were creating cards for Visa, what things were you considering to like entice high earners into, you know, applying for these cards? And then was it kind of just left unsaid that these like millennials that you were trying to entice were just men, right? They were just straight white men. So the way that we were thinking about building out the Chase Sapphire Reserve was a product that was similar to the success of the Amex Platinum, but with a little bit more around a young urban millennial lifestyle. And the idea more accessible. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and slightly more accessible. Um, And so the idea was that we could actually create this kind of black card, centurion card experience for a younger population. And that actually would have, um, you know, the lounge access that we all like, right? Right. You know, it would have um, what one thing that's really interesting about the Chase Sapphire Reserve is that the value actually doesn't necessarily come from the cashback rewards, right? right? It comes a lot from the different the perks or the benefits. The perks and the, the benefits, yeah. exactly. Totally. And so, um, you know, really creating this card that felt aspirational mm-hmm. and, you know, really elevated you as this young professional traveler right. was was the idea behind it. And actually, a fun fact is um, even everything was was meant to feel very aspirational and premium. So even the weight of I the knew card. Yeah. That yeah. was the first weighted card I'd ever gotten. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, with credit cards, right, is like typically it's just plastic, right? Mm-hmm. You have plastic with some numbers on the card. But with the reserve, that was the first card. And then I now have the Amex Platinum, but that was the first card where it actually like you set it down on the table to pay, right? And you hear an audible like like that clink. Uh, literally, and yes. it, like, it makes you feel powerful. And you're like, oh my gosh, who am I? Like, this is the height of luxury. So I, yeah, and I I imagine it was 100%, of course, like a, a, a decision that was like very Absolutely. intentional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we actually, in the visa ro- rules that I helped write, we would say the weight that it needed to be and the types really? of material that it would be. And it was actually interesting because this is a mm. travel card. And so it would sometimes beep in the metal detectors. So during our tests, we would have to make sure that the metal that we used wasn't beeping in a metal detector. Oh, Um, shit you don't think about. Exactly. Funny. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it was a really interesting experience. And and I think the the important distinction to make with women and credit and the industry was, you know, up until 1974. You could not have a credit card in your own name. Exactly. Women could be rejected from a credit card without a male cosigner. And for business loans, that was until 1988, which was you know, I was thought of to be in this world at that right, point. Right. Um, and so, you know, since then, after 1974, um, RBG's work with ACLU made it illegal, right, to say, if woman, then. However, what we're seeing with the credit industry today is that because the system truly was never designed to center women or, or let's just say center— Any marginalized group, Exactly. Right? Yeah. Anyone, any marginalized group— um, the downstream impacts are there, right? You think about end-to-end, you think about credit scoring and how that reflects systemic bias, which is, yes. you know, a whole conversation. Um, you also think about the way that advertising is working, is that right. banks are advertising to men 13 times more than they're advertising to the rest of these groups. 
Which, can I pause you there? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so they're advertising 13% more to men. 13 times 13 times. Oh, 13 times. 13 times. Yeah. But women hold the majority of the buying power. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I'm sure you know the stat, but by yeah. the end of this decade, women are, are slated to hold 75% of discretionary spend. So is that... Because they're not stupid people, obviously, that are running these. Guys. So where's the disconnect? Is it is it the bias? Is it the bias? Is it the expectation that the man in a heteronormative relationship is is owning the financial decisions? Like what? I'm sure it's an onion layered problem, right? You start peeling back onions, onion layers. But like what what do you see as as the disconnect there? So there are multiple pieces. I think the first one is that men traditionally are the financial or have been the the decision makers of the household. And so um, what we see actually is that women are twice as likely to be authorized users on a parent or on a partner's card. And so it's these men that are getting the products, whether that is because they actually can qualify for them or it's because, you know, they're the the ones actually being marketed too. Exactly. So there's so much around that. Um, And then women end up being the ones making the purchasing decisions. But as these authorized users, which, you know, brings the problem full circle where women are actually building credit for their male counterparts and earning rewards for their male counterparts, right? right? So that's the second piece is kind of this marketing, you know, understanding issue. The third piece is education. One of the things that we saw was that women are half as likely to have received an education on credit by the time they reach high school. Yep. And we all know that we're not taught about credit in school. We we don't know where to learn about it. And so there's this, this education gap that never really closes. So that's the third piece of, of this onion layer is that if you don't know the rules of the game, you don't want to play. Right. Um, so that's kind of the third piece. And the last piece is actually the rewards. Um, they are much more catered towards where men are spending most of the time. So if you look at these travel rewards cards mm. that, again, I was building at Visa, um, they are rewarding where where these male-dominated categories like dining, like travel. And, and again, I love to travel as much as the other person, but what we're seeing is that women are spending significantly more in fundamentally different categories, like like retail, household goods, pharmacies, beauty, mm-hmm. you know, all of those categories we're spending a lot in, and that's not being rewarded on traditional products today. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of this slew of marketing, education, legacy, rewards, and, and it, right. it turns into this kind of just whole whole system that truly does not center a population that, to your point, holds the spending power in this country. Um, What has been really um, inspirational for me is, you know, seeing young women who are coming into the workforce at greater rates than ever before, right? Yeah. And having incomes higher than ever before and Being really more college saying, educated and yeah. Exactly. And really saying that we want to know and we don't want those things to be true. So right. I think the intention is there. And and of course everything that that you're doing here proves that, right? This group of financial feminists who yeah. are just like I want to know and I I want to be able to play, right? I want to learn the rules. And so I think the industry hasn't really caught up with that in creating products and services that are actually centering women. And I think a lot of that is also because the financial services industry is so male-dominated, right? You don't see as many women as we would like to that look like you and me. So, um, I mean, there's so much work to be done, but I think um, we are on an upward swing. Yeah, and the stat that I think about all the time, which is the one you cited, of like credit card couldn't have one in your own name till 1974. 
my mom was born in, you know, 1962. She was in middle school by that time. You know, it's not that long ago that there was this huge gap. And yet we wonder, like, why aren't women able to take advantage of these things? And why aren't women able to build credit? And then we remember all of these statistics of, like, basically yesterday, women didn't have the opportunity to do any of these things. Exactly. Yeah. There was actually an interesting interview that I heard from Hillary Clinton. Mm. And she was saying that, you know, even after this law was passed, she still experienced discrimination when it came to getting a credit card. And they had mm. asked her to have Bill as a co-signer. And she said, Can you I make more money than him. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I'm sorry, do you know who I am? I know. I know. So, I mean, yes, there there is mm. a certain thing as, you know, laws being passed. But I think history time and time again has showed that it's that's not enough, right? right. There needs to be so much more right. that needs to be done. Right. So I'm writing my first book and I'm writing about, I'm doing a whole chapter on debt. And a huge portion of that is around credit cards, especially. And from the research we've done, we know that actually the number one reason women get into debt is they simply don't understand how a loan works. So in very basic terms, can you describe the process of signing up for a credit card, putting a purchase on the credit card, and hypothetically, the different payment options for, you know, paying that paying that balance back. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's start off with the application process. So you go, you, you know, figure out you want this product, you apply for it, and they'll ask you for some information. Um, you'll share that information, and you get a decision pretty quick. What's interesting is in the background, there's a lot going on. Yeah. So this, you know, we call them credit issuers, right? That could be your bank that's giving you your credit card. That can be, um, you know, a landlord that's giving you your home. It right. could be a loan for a thing, right? And so what they'll take into account is, first of all, your credit score, um, but also each of these different credit issuers have their own secret sauce that mm -hmm. they put into it. And so, you know, some issuers might want to know, um, OK, what actually is your income? And they'll have you submit a pay statement. You know, other issuers, there's new types of ways to think about underwriting is, is what they call this yeah. process. Um, so a lot goes into that. And then they decide, OK, yes or no, do I want to extend this person credit? And if yes what terms do I want to extend it on? So mm -hmm. what interest rate do I want to give them, right? If right. you are riskier, they'll give you a higher interest rate. What is the minimum payment um, that, you know, you need to pay at the end of each month? Um, when they say riskier, what what factors or criteria are going into designating somebody as risky? So at the highest level, the way I think about how credit scoring is created is thinking about if you would lend money to a friend. And so there are different factors that go into credit scoring. And so one of them is your length of credit, right? Have you had credit products before? And, right. and this is a question that you would probably ask your friend, right? It's, hey, have you done something like this before? Right. So your length of credit and also whether that credit was in your own name or in someone else's name, were you primarily in charge of paying that back? That's a huge piece of yeah. what goes into it. The second piece is, okay, if you had credit, how were you 
using it? Were you paying credit back on time? Were yeah. you paying it back in full? Yep. Um, and so you want those answers to be yes, right? And so the more you're doing that, the better someone is to lend you something. Right. The third, which is kind of an interesting concept, is this credit utilization concept. And essentially what credit utilization is, is it is the percentage of your total credit line that you're using. And so really simply, let's say your credit line is $1,000, you use 100 of it, you've used 10%. And what issuers want to see is that you're actually using a very small percentage of your credit. As little as possible, yeah. And what's wild is that you want to have your credit utilization be below 30% at all times, but actually that's just to keep you out of the red zone. So if you're above 30%, then that's actually actively a red flag and that can tank your credit. So what we would always say is keep your credit below 10%, 10%, 5% every single day of the month. Yep. Because what I've heard is people will come to me and say, okay, well, I pay my card off in full at the end of the month, so I should be fine. And the challenge with that is that your credit might be reported to credit bureaus at some random day in the month mm-hmm. that you do not even know of. Right. And so even if you're paying in full at the end of the month, at that point in time, if your credit utilization is you know, 35%, 50%, that's going to be docked against you. And so you want to keep your credit utilization really low. There are other factors, you know, smaller ones like, okay, are you seeking credit a lot? So that's called do you have a lot of hard pulls? Right. If you're looking for your credit score on your own, you should do that as much as possible. That's a soft pull, and that's not going to affect your credit. Yep. But with a hard pull, which is basically if you're actually applying for credit and your credit is being used to determine whether or not you should be given a loan or not, right. that credit card issuers don't want to see that you're seeking a bunch of different types of credit all at once because that possibly is a sign of distress. And, you know, all of these factors kind of have their own biases baked into them. So I'm not going to talk about that, but I will just talk about the fact that this is how it is done today. Yeah. So those are some of the top factors that they're going to look into, which is, okay, have you been building credit? Have you had credit before? If you have credit, how are you using it? Are you paying it back on time? Are you paying it back in full? How's your credit utilization? And are you seeking a bunch of credit or not? Um, So, yeah, all of those things go into it. So we have a credit episode as part of season one and literally reviewed everything you just said. And we've seen, I've I've seen it both in my my credit and also one of the recommendations I give is if you can ask for a credit line increase and then don't use it, right? So we've seen a bunch of community members go out and get credit line increases and then see their credit scores go up because again, that utilization rate is smaller. So I think I'm at like 3.3% credit Amazing. I love it. Which I love. And I haven't checked it recently, but (laughs) last time I checked. Okay. So we've applied for the credit card. Let's say we've gotten accepted due to these factors, right? Okay, I have gone and bought, um, I don't know, a $100 sweater from TJ Maxx. I don't know why TJ Maxx are selling a $100 sweater. Bad example. <laughs> I don't know. I bought a sweater and it's 100 bucks, and I put it on the card. What happens now? So there are different payment options that your that your credit issuer is going to give you in, you know, the 10, 20 page document that you get yep. <laughs> um, in a bunch of legalese, right? But so to looks like it's written in German. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So to break it down, so you have multiple options. One option is to pay the minimum fee, which 
We do a fun um, myth versus fact uh, quiz on our end, but essentially, that I hear a lot from many women disproportionately. Carry a balance it increases yeah, your credit score. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I don't know who spread that myth. I, I have the not cons- so conspiracy conspiracy theory that it's credit card companies because they keep you. I in mean, debt. that's how they. they pss- that's how they, that's make, how they money. make money. Yeah, right. and there's actually um, a, a slight tangent, but there is a study that I read that when credit cards were first invented in the 50s. Um, they actually worked with behavioral economists to say, okay, well, we're making a lot of interest on people. What's a way to make more interest? And mm-hmm. they actually did studies that said if you show someone the minimum payment or whether they should pay in full or some other option, they will always default to the minimum payment. So anyway, these these folks are smart, right? But we're going to be smarter here. Right. So do not pay just the minimum. And what I always say is, unless you really, really have to carry a balance, credit card debt is some of the most expensive money you will ever borrow. So even if you know, you're know you in a situation where you can't pay the full amount for whatever reason, pay as much as you can above that minimum. Anything that you can, just pay it there. So anyway, so that's one option is you could pay the minimum. Do not recommend that option. And let's say in this hypothetical example, our due date's the 15th. So if I, on this $100 sweater, send in $25, let's say that's the minimum payment, by the 15th, what does that mean for now the 16th of the month? So for the 16th, you are still owing the other $85. Right. And that $85 is compounding in interest. Yes. And essentially, compound in interest is this evil concept that... (laughs) Unless it's working for you. If you're investing, compound interest is great. But if you're in debt, compound interest is bad. Absolutely. Very, like, very, very bad with a capital B, right? Because you're accruing interest on your interest. Yep. And it's... adds up so quickly and is really, really challenging to get out of, you know, I mean, that's a whole other conversation is, you know, being in debt and paying that off, but um, that dinks your credit as well. And and it goes back to the utilization factor that really affects. So, um, so yeah, so the minimum payment is an option. Um, You can pay some other amount that is between the minimum and in full, or you can pay in full, which is, you know, kind of the ideal way to be using these credit products is you use them like a debit card, right? You are, you're paying on credit, you're earning whatever perks, whatever rewards, you're building credit, but you're not, you know, getting into any of those nasty gotchas that, you know, my mom always warned me about. (laughs) If you don't pay anything, what happens? So there are various things that can happen to you. Um, you'll get hit with late fees. Yep. Um, and actually, that's kind of the best case scenario. And you're getting interest, right? So it's interest plus exactly. a late fee. Yeah. Exactly. So interest plus the late fee. And then what happens is, you know, 30, 60, 90 days later, depending on what your issuer decides, they're going to start reporting you delinquent to mm. credit bureaus. Yep. And getting a delinquency show up on your credit report is some of the the hardest pieces to remedy because it stays on your report at least for seven years. And it makes debt and borrowing any time so expensive for you. Um, And those rates just really don't go down. So once you do that once, um, it yeah, I think a black spot is the best way to describe it. So when you're thinking about using credit cards responsibly, I often compare them to a knife where I'm like, 
Knives are great because they can cut vegetables, right? And if used properly, they're a great tool. They can also, of course, cut you, right? So in responsible credit card usage, for me, it's always pay it on time and in full. If you can't, same thing. Like, pay as much as you can. And it's also why I advise saving an emergency fund first so you don't hopefully have to go into credit card debt. What other responsible ways can we use credit cards? Or like, what does it look like to be a responsible credit card user? It's really not rocket science. (laughs) It's pay it off on time and in full and keep your credit utilization as low as possible. The rule of thumb that I always say is if you pay your card off every Friday, you should be in the clear of having your utilization below the, Mm. the, the good threshold. I send my monthly payment in for the full balance, like I think the day before it's due. Yeah. I know, I'm trying to remember if credit cards, and you could you could tell me, if because um, I know there's some benefit to like paying loans off twice a month as opposed to just once a month. Do credit cards look work like that as well, where if you're paying them more frequently, that's, that's a better idea or a better option? Yes, but the reason is not that you're paying it off more frequently. The reason is that it keeps your utilization low. Got it. Okay. So it all comes back to credit utilization. Got it. So I always say pay it off every Friday if you can. If you have a big purchase, just pay off that purchase immediately after so that doesn't affect your credit utilization. And actually, we've done studies where we've had women reduce their credit utilization and pay their card off every Friday, and their credit scores increased 20 points on average in a week. Wow. And one woman's score went up 118 points. Oh, hell yeah. So That's this amazing. Is, it's super effective. And right. actually, it's very relevant for, for this audience is credit utilization disproportionately affects women yeah. because we are getting lower credit lines for many reasons. We lack credit history. We don't know. And so even if we are spending the same amount as a man, our credit utilization looks artificially inflated. Mm. And so even if our credit line isn't as high. Exactly. So yeah, if you, instead of the $1,000 credit line, now have a $500 credit line, but you're spending the same amount of money. Yeah. Exactly. So especially, you know, for, again, any group that this industry was not built for, making sure to keep your credit utilization low is one of the greatest hacks. And that's really going to skyrocket your credit score, you know, almost overnight. Yeah, that's amazing. In my research, and just it's pretty obvious, again, once you start doing any sort of thinking about this, but most credit card companies, they seem to play this kind of gotcha marketing, right, where they don't want you to know how interest works in order to make money. Because if you don't know how a loan works or when you're charged interest or how you're charged interest, of course, like we said before, that means more money for these companies. How are you working to combat that? Yeah. So um, I guess we can dive into into our product. So essentially, um, so we are building a product called Sequin. And essentially what Sequin is, is it is a debit card and credit builder that builds credit more effectively for women and earns rewards that pay back the pink tax. And essentially, um, you know, the reason that I had wanted to build this in the first place was I had been building these popular credit cards like the Chase Sapphire Reserve. I got rejected. and, and Which is still so funny. Every time you say it, I'm like, it's so... It's, it's honestly, it shouldn't, I guess, be as surprising, unfortunately, as it is. But it's just like... You knowingly, like, you you built the game, and then you're like, I lost. Like, I know. how? I know. I yeah. know. I know. And so, you know, I looked around, and I saw 
just so many smart and ambitious women and saying that, you know, statistically, we are better to lend to and we are right. holding the spending power. Right. And actually, I saw a stat in Visa data that 70% of women are spending on non-credit building tools. And that is leading... So debit cards, cash... Yeah. yeah, and credit cards in other people's names. And that was leading to us mm. having these negative credit experiences right. like getting rejected, like getting right. lower credit lines, higher interest rates. Right, and- because if you're if you're a lender, right, you're you're saying, "Okay, I'm going to give you this thing because I trust that you can quote unquote like handle it," right? But if you have not established that you can handle it, even if you you're like, "I can do this," right? To your point of like, "I have the income, like I can do this." But if you haven't proven that to the system yet, it doesn't know. Exactly. Mm, yeah. yeah. So I had no idea how to start building credit because credit is a chicken and egg game that you need credit <laughs> in order to, to build, build credit, credit. But you build, yeah, yeah. So you know, I I left Visa just thinking that you know this was wrong. I didn't right. feel like the industry was keeping up with where women were going in society, which you know is everywhere. Right. Um, and so you know, decided to build this product. Essentially, the way that Sequin works is it is a debit card, and also a line of credit. And so when you sign up for Sequin, you're signing up for two things. And the line of credit becomes available via the debit card. Mm, So when you're actually using this product, it works exactly like your debit card. There's no interest. There's no late fees. There's no gotchas. Um, It just acts like your debit card. Mm. And in the background, essentially what we're doing is Every time you're spending, you're making a purchase using that line of credit. Got it. And you pay that back every week instead of monthly just to make it easier to budget. And then at the end of the month, we tally up all of your payments and we actually report those to credit bureaus. Cool. So in effect, all of your payments are turning into credit building activities. Right. In, and a, that, in a way that's like a safety net, right? There's exactly. No, yeah. Cool. You can't get into trouble with with the sequin card, um, which is something that, you know, I saw a lot of, again, you know, minority women yeah. folks struggling with, right? Where you're not educated about the system. So you're making these avoidable credit Especially mistakes. If, if you're first gen, no one in your family is educated about exactly. how the system works. Exactly. There's so much privilege steeped into even yeah. understanding how these systems work. And so yeah. we wanted to create a product that wouldn't get you into trouble, but would allow you to build credit. And so essentially, think of this product as your key to unlocking the world of these higher value, you know, travel cards, et cetera, which, you know, we all want, but we need need help to get there. And so that's kind of the the nitty gritty of this product. And the last piece I'll add that's very cool, I know we've talked about credit utilization quite a bit. So we actually make a payment for you the date that your credit utilization or your credit is being reported Mm. to the credit bureaus. And so you can max out this card and your credit utilization is not going to be affected. Cool. So it, you're not well, taking taking the guesswork out of it. For exactly. The yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I cool. kind of think of it like a credit card with training wheels that just builds your credit, teaches you about the system, um, and you know there haven't really been products like this on the market. So yeah. it's really exciting to be able to offer something that you know something I just wish I had had when yeah. I was starting off on my credit journey. So how does Sequin make money? So we have a monthly or an annual fee. Okay. So um, it's just a normal kind of subscription, subscription. model. Cool. Um, compared to other products that are in kind of like the early credit stage, um, we're offering rewards and we're also um, – 
you know, not requiring you to put up your credit line up front. So essentially, we are charging either $9 a month or $89 annually. And a lot of that gets paid back in cash rewards and refunds on the pink tax. So we'll talk about that next. But we didn't want there to be this interest mechanism. Um, That's not how we wanted to make money. We wanted people to understand how to budget for this product and use it responsibly. This question I got actually in a comment, and it made me a little uncomfortable, and I wanted to talk to you about it and get your insight because you definitely know more than I do. I always thought, of course, as I'm going to use a credit card, right, and I'm going to use it responsibly and use it as a debit card and get a bunch of rewards and basically use it as, like, the ultimate, like, fuck the patriarchy tool because I am taking money from this huge billion-dollar corporation and being like, actually, you expect to make money off of me. I'm going to make money off of you. You're going to pay for my flight to Europe. You're mm-hmm. going to pay, you know, for my lounge access to, on that flight to Europe. Yeah. But really, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, it almost feels like I'm almost making my money and my rewards off the back of people who are going into debt. Is that accurate? Like, is that what's happening? Is it like they're able to offer rewards to people who are able to use these credit cards responsibly, either because they're making smart decisions or more likely they probably have the privilege of using those cards responsibly on the back of a bunch of people who are going into debt trying to survive or you know, trying to use these credit cards. So that is part of it. But there's actually another kind of disturbing issue here. Oh, we love them. Okay. (laughs) more disturbing than this first one? Buckle in. Okay. (laughs) Um, So essentially, in addition to interest, the way that credit cards make money is on interchange. And essentially what interchange is, is it's those merchant swipe fees. So when it's saying, you know, you go to a small business and they say, we don't accept credit, that's because the fees that they have to pay cut so much off of their margin that it's not worth it to them. Or you'll go to some places, like actually we're in LA, it's hard to go out to a restaurant and not pay for valet parking because there's no parking, right? And so they'll say like, oh, $10 for this. And then it's an $11 fee if you use a credit card. Exactly, exactly. So what happens with these more premium travel rewards cards is that the interchange is higher. And the reason Mm. that, I guess the rationale behind that is, okay, someone with a travel rewards card is probably spending more. And so in order to, you know, to get that additional spend at your merchant, you should be accepting this, this card. And the interchange fees end up kind of mapping to your rewards. But Mm. what ends up happening is if you're a huge business, that doesn't really matter, right? Two, three percent per swipe fee, you know, someone else can pocket it. And for the convenience that you're offering hypothetically to a customer of just not having to use cash or it. Yeah. But what ends up happening is these smaller businesses are the ones who end up paying the price. Interesting. And so, you know, in addition, what you said is an element, but more of a downstream impact. But what we really see with this interchange issue is great. If you're a huge corporation, you can pay, you know, two, three percent per per swipe. But if you're a small business, that really does kind of gouge you. And yeah. so, you know, a lot of times what I'll say is if you're shopping at a small business, use either um, a debit card, one that has credit building abilities yeah. like ours, um, or um, try to pay in cash if you mm. can. I mean, it's going to be the small ticket purchase. Oh, see, that's so – I don't – so we'll talk about this in a second. I don't own a debit card. I never have. Like, I literally have never owned a debit card in neither of my parents, and I hardly ever keep cash on me. I put everything on a credit card, and I pay it off in full every month. But I didn't – you're exactly right with the merchant fees. I knew that, but it wasn't – it didn't, like, click to me. Yeah. Of like, oh, and then I'm like, okay, do I 
take care of myself and give myself the little cash back, right? Or am I, do, of course, I want to take care of small businesses too. So it's, mm, okay, I'm going to have to sit with that. It's it's something to think about, right? And for, right. It, it's the same way that you think about charity or whatever else right, is right. however you want to split that up. I mean, of course, um, pocketing the cash back, building credit, all of that right. is really important. And so, you know, it really does just depend on where your own, wherever you feel comfortable. But, right. but it is, I think, an interesting fact just to illuminate. Um, yeah, just, and to, just to think about. And, yeah, just no. to think about exactly. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, no, I'm going to have a whole moral crisis. <laughs> we, you touched on this a little bit, but a lot of women have no idea that just because you have a credit card with your name on it doesn't mean you're actually building credit. So what are some common pitfalls? And we mentioned a couple of these already, but like what kind of mistakes are you seeing them make when they're building yeah, credit? Absolutely. So the one that you just mentioned, being an authorized or a secondary user on someone else's credit card that is, you know, a parent or a partner right. more likely, that is not building your credit as effectively. And again, that goes back into the factors that go into your credit. Are you the primary user? Were you the person responsible for paying back? Um, so it'll get you credit visible. Your name will be in the system, but it's not going to have those same credit boosting effects. Right. So that's one. The second piece that we see is, you know, just these, these avoidable credit mistakes, like paying the minimum, like um, paying those late fees as well. We right. see women and, and minorities disproportionately doing that. Um, However, when we're educated, that gap closes, which is interesting. And mm -hmm. so it really does relate just to a lack of education around it as well. The third piece is not opening up a credit building tool in your own name early. The length of credit piece is so important on this. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you'll say, oh, you know, I have five years of history. That sounds great. But other people have 30 years, 50 years right. of history. And unfortunately... This isn't something that you, you can, can control, go back right? you can't go and back in time. fix. Right. And so, you know, just being able to tell your loved ones, like, hey, let's start getting you building credit right. early and responsibly is really important as yeah. well. So those are kind of the top three tips. Switching gears into entrepreneurship. Yes. Can you walk me through the venture capitalist process? <laughs> because um, I know the stats, and I'm sure you know the stats, not only – do women not receive venture capital? What is it, 3%? I think? I've, I've heard somewhere two to three. Less Especially than... women of color. It's even worse if you're a woman of color. But very few venture capitalists are actually women. And so can you just talk about any like experiences you had raising VC and like what were the challenges, especially as a brown woman trying to do that? Absolutely. I mean, gosh, how much time do you have? I mean, we, uh, have, we have like an hour. So I will, we do. I will we can sit get here and be it. present for all yes, of that. Yes. So... I think, um, no, there's two elements to this. I think the reality is that someone who looks like me is less likely to be funded by a venture capital world. Um, and I think, you know, it's really important to go in and um, be equipped with facts and expertise and data. And I think I've seen that I need to come into meetings 10 times more prepared mm -hmm. than my male counterparts. And, yeah. and this is not unique to the venture capital. This is every industry, right? right. As a woman, you have to be 10 times better. Um, and so, you know, that's something that I've seen going in is, is just getting grilled, right? Getting grilled on stats, getting grilled on my background, getting grilled on my vision. It's a lot more, hmm. um, a lot more questions. And actually, yeah. I was in 
an early pitch, and I was pitching to a group of mostly male VCs, but there was one woman. And after, she said, in my years of of venture, I've never seen someone be grilled like that. And you did a great job. And so, you know, for me... Which feels very validating, but also like, what the fuck? I know. And and actually, I had that exact feeling. At first, I was like, oh, thank you, because this is a woman I really respect. And then right. I was like, that's really messed up. Why did that happen? <laughs> right. So yeah. I think, um, you know, that's one element is, is there are those differences. You do have to be 10 times better. On the other side... One of my personal theses that I've I've come to develop is I really feel being underrepresented is your superpower. And coming in and saying, I know something you don't, I see something that you don't, yeah. is actually so powerful. I read the stat somewhere that every single woman is a billion-dollar opportunity because most systems in our society have not been designed with women with minorities in mind. So if you see something and you say, this is not working for me, it's probably not you. It's the system and you can do something about it. So I think there there are two sides of that coin of it's really shitty and I'm not going to downplay that. But (laughs) on the other side, I do feel, I mean, that's why you know, we're all able to see these opportunities and even you, right? Right. You know, that's that's so much of of your founding story as well. So um, have you been following the Elizabeth Holmes? Yes, trial? Okay. actually a lot. I am obsessed with her. Me and too. Obsessed. Okay. Oh I didn't gosh. expect to bring this up, but I'm really <laughs> curious. I have an interesting, interesting response to this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I want to know your thoughts. Yeah. Because 100%, I think what she did was wrong and 100% deserves to be prosecuted. Yeah. Right? I think she's 100%, though, also getting way more bad press and is is being subjected to the kind of justice that we have not given to male entrepreneurs. And so it's interesting because it's like, yes, this is a step in the right direction where there's a bunch of Silicon Valley people who are selling dreams rather than actual products. But I feel like there's a massive double standard because of her success as a woman. I have so many thoughts on this. So the media loves a good takedown story of 100%. women. They they love it, right? The and away they love co-founders, the wing co-founders. Like I can keep like Exactly. And by the way, when I first launched Sequin, I just written a Medium article that had legs of its own and there is, you know, there was a reporter who just picked up the story and just trashed everything that we were doing without, Why? you know, asking. I mean, just Why? like, oh, the Actually, the premise of the article is that, um, you know, if there actually are so many discrepancies in the system, the bank should be held liable. I'm like, yes, the bank should be held liable. But in the meantime, right. let's also do something right. about it, right? I'm going to be sitting around waiting for the banks to be held liable yeah. for a good chunk exactly. of time. Exactly. Yeah, so, wow. I mean, I think we see it time and time again. You listed, I would have listed all those same people as you are getting built up by the media and then they love the takedown. They love the destruction. Which just as this, like... We as human beings, we love the pitchforks. Yes. We love the tort. Like exactly. we love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, especially with the double standard around, yeah, like she was Silicon Valley's like golden, golden girl, sweetheart. Yeah, right. yeah. She. Um. I mean, I think you know there were certain lines that were crossed, and that's. And why I want to be she... very clear. <laughs> I want to be very clear. Like I a hundred percent believe that she committed a crime. Yes, absolutely. 
just the perception of that and the fact that we know that a bunch like I know because I I worked at startups like you 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 end up selling what the potential of this mm-hmm. thing could be. That's the whole reason you get venture capital, right? Is you're selling the potential of this thing. Mm-hmm. You're going on Shark Tank typically, right? And you're selling the potential of exactly. this thing. And so I think for her, what of course the line that was crossed was like, when was she actually lying about what the thing could do exactly. at that moment exactly. in time? Yeah, it turned from this is my vision to this is what this thing does right, right now and was being tested on very real people. Right. And, and that's the problem. But I know men have done that shit. I know men have done I that know. shit. I know. And they are not being prosecuted. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, double standards are real, right? Yeah. I think um, anyone who denies that, no. I think, you know, could use use a little bit of eye-opening and a little bit of education. But I agree. I mean, there are just so many of these stories. And what's interesting is that, have, did you watch Super Pumped? No. It's the new one. It's a new, it's on Showtime, I think. Um, but it's on uh, the Uber CEO. Oh, and no, it's I from his perspective. And it's very interesting the way that these two stories are being told even yeah. are, you know, it shows him and, and you know, his faults as well. But it's in a different, a slightly different light. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting mm-hmm. watching these shows back to back, too. Yeah. So I agree. I mean, I think just the media loves a good takedown, um, especially when it's, you know, totally. a woman. So. Totally. Yeah. And, and it's not, I think it's, again, it's not just the takedown. It's the, yeah, it's, and the double standard. It's just, um, I think we also expect and weaponize women's altruism, right? As we say, like, we, we value women's empathy and our altruism to like do the right thing, quote unquote. And then if we see a woman not quote unquote doing the right thing, we punish her or jeopardize her or her opportunities or career in a way that we just don't with men. So I think part of the conversation around Elizabeth Holmes, which again should be the conversation, it's just that it's not happening with men, is it's like, what the fuck? Why did she take advantage of all these people? People's medical history was on the line. Like, you know, we don't, we're not saying that about men. It's like, didn't she care? Didn't she, Mm -hmm. does she have any remorse around this? Mm -hmm. And like, we don't really do that with with men. Mm -hmm. There's another piece, I 100% agree with that. And there was another piece uh, related to her where um, in the trial, they were talking about the fact that she had used company funds to buy clothes and to buy, you know, whatever else. The the weaponization of the frivolous spending. I actually have a question about that too. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, you know, she is held to a different standard. The VCs came out one of them was like, oh, yeah, and I thought she was a pretty girl, right? Which, Which by the way, like, jaw drop, right? Both know. of us. I wish, like, everyone could see both I of us. Know. But that is a part of the standard. And I think it goes back to the pink tax, right. pink tax conversation. We'll give of, you we'll give you VC, you yeah. cute little woman entrepreneur, as long as you're hot. Yeah. As long as you're nice to look at. Exactly. So, I And mean, then we'll tell you that you're frivolous, that you're spending frivolously on the things that we expect, right? You to How? look hot for the makeup and the clothes and the hair. You can't win. There's no, just you can't, you win. can't win. You right? cannot win. I mean, again, I think we keep on caveating this with she lied. It yes. was fraud. Yes. I, mean, but, yeah, I don't want to be but, super clear. But everything leading up yeah. to that, right? Before she crossed those lines, right. it's a pretty typical story of you have a vision, you're selling it, you're out there, you're doing what it takes. And, and she wasn't a scientist. She didn't have any experience in healthcare. And a bunch of people were like, that's crazy. And I'm like, literally people do that shit all the time. 
people will say, I want to start this company. I have no idea how. So I'm going to go and like, I'm going to go employ a bunch of really smart people who can do this for me. That's completely normal. So yeah, I'm so fascinated by this I know, story. I know the double standard. I mean, I think the other one that I think back to a lot also was a way co-founder as well, yep. where, you know, she was just she there was a bunch of those where it was yeah. like, and again, that that whole idea. I think with a way story, I don't know the full, I haven't read that article in a long time, so I don't want to misspeak because I think, again, there were like, there were serious issues that were happening. But again, it was like, we have a certain pedestal that we put women founders on and then we're really excited to watch them fall. Mm -hmm. And in addition, we're like an insensitive, uncomfortable work environment. How dare these women? And it's like, men have created uncomfortable work environments and also been praised for it. Like exactly. the Steve Jobs bullshit where they're like, he wouldn't shower and he would yell at his employees, but because he was passionate and because he was a visionary. And I'm like, make that make sense. I know, I know, I know, I know. I mean, you, you can see it when you have these comparisons, right? You right. have like, Again, you have the Uber CEO and you have WeWork CEO. Did you watch that whole yes, thing? Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. There's so many of these now, yeah. right? But yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to watch. And I think, you know, coming back to it, I think about my day-to-day, right? And I think about what does this mean for me? Sure. I mean, I am ready to get a lot of criticism for what I'm doing. I think ultimately you just have to care and really believe that you're doing a good thing. And for me, it's talking to thousands of women who are like, I feel so much more credit confident and empowered in my credit after talking to you or, or using your services. And, yeah. and I need that. Right. And so when all of the other bullshit comes at me, <laughs> that's what I that's what I think about. Right. Knowing that you're doing it for a reason. I know. I think the intentionality is is the most important piece. Yep. And yeah, not not lying. <laughs> then not lying and frauding investors. Yes. <laughs> and giving positive cancer test results when you don't have cancer. <laughs> oh. I am I have been obsessed with that. I know. Story, Did though. you are you watching the, the dropout? The yeah. Fantasy Freak? Yeah. I, I watched the most recent episode last night. It was I, so good. I think I've seen two or three yeah. episodes. There's but, just one more out. Okay. I have yeah. I've listened to the whole podcast. I've read I've read what is it, Bad Blood. I've mm-hmm. read I have um I have a very big obsession with like scam artists and grifters. Like I love. I mean, there's that. a lot of that out Anna there Delphi. right now. Yep. Yeah. Tinder somewhere. Yep. No, this. I just. I'm really fascinated by it because it's yeah. literally. So the words con man or the word, you know, the phrase con man is confidence man, right? So it's like people who are just incredibly confident. Even like the catch me if you can of the you, world. No, I love and that I know, movie. me too. I feel like we I have a similar similar interests. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's, it's just, just like so what is the role of confidence and. I mean, it just, it gets you all of these crazy places, but when you cross the line, then... Right. Well, and then some people, I feel like, do actually have a conscience, like, you know, the Leo DiCaprio character, which is based on a true story, Mm -hmm. right? Frank Abagnale. And then you also have the people who I think are, you know, borderline or actually sociopathic who don't feel anything Mm -hmm. and who are okay manipulating people because it actually makes them feel good to manipulate people. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Didn't think we'd be talking about this. I know. I no, I'm, I'm really. Yeah, me it's too. <laughs> so starting your own business rather than like taking a banking job or, you know, a job in finance, right? Because you graduated the MBA, right? And then you were like, I'm going to go start a company. Yeah. I started the company actually when I was in my MBA. Okay. Yeah. Ooh, was that super daunting in the light of COVID? And did you know you always wanted to run your own business? So, you know, going back to the Steve Jobs conversation we're having. <laughs> sure. So I, so first generation immigrant, born in India, we 
moved to Cupertino. And that's actually where I grew up. So the land of Steve Jobs, Apple World. um, Google, all of it. Yeah, Yeah. all of that. Growing up, when I looked at entrepreneurs, I thought it was Steve Jobs. And I Mm -hmm. looked at myself. I looked at my values. I looked at, you know, how he was leading orgs. And and he is... He's a genius. He's a visionary. All of those words, again, that All we used to describe true, men that are also, true. You know? Yeah. Um, but I don't think I ever – I didn't see entrepreneurs who looked like me. Yeah. And I think it's very – it is very hard to be who you can't see. Hmm. And so, you know, I, I had my – went to Visa, worked there. We know that story. I left Visa because – I felt there was a lot of opportunity to do something good in banking. Yeah. Um, there are so many underserved populations that need help. Yeah. And so I went to business school thinking that maybe I could be an executive at a big bank and I could really focus on some of these populations, especially given Make some my- of that change within these like monoliths that already exactly, exist. Yeah. Exactly. And then I started getting offers for those positions, and I realized that the change that needed to happen, because it's so systemic and ingrained, it couldn't be made from within the system. And when I started thinking about populations that I really cared about, it was the ones that I identified with, right? Being a woman, being a first-generation immigrant, being a person of color, all of these populations are being marginalized and left out of the system. And so- I looked around and I said, I don't see a company that feels like it's going to address this. And I was in the way that you want. Exactly. And I was looking around and then I started looking at myself and I said, you know, I have this amazing background. I really care. Also, I think the timing was good. Time's up was happening. Me too was happening. And I was just like, the future is so female. Hell yeah. Like, let's go. Um, And so I was actually doing my MBA summer internship at a design agency called IDEO. Yes. And human, uh, uh, was it not human design? Um, Design theory, right? Yeah, yeah. Design thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I um, Oh, this is very weird. Mm -hmm. I, um, one of my internships in college was helping the marketing for a book all about like design theory. Oh my gosh. I don't know if it was one of the IDEO founders, it was like somebody who had like worked in that that whole space. Yes. So that's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's a it's a really creative bunch. And and again, I was thinking a lot about, you know, what do I want to do? Because going back into traditional bank doesn't really make sense for what I want to do. Yeah. Um, and then I just had this idea and I said, you know, maybe I could build a financial product that was totally different, that could really center women and, you know, mostly de-center who the industry was built (laughs) for. But then as I thought about, you know, who I really cared about helping, it just went back to my mom. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I just feel like so many women need this. And, And there's this amazing quote from the president of the Women's World Bank. And she said, when you build products designed to center women, they work better for everyone. Unfortunately, the other way around isn't true. And I think Will you say that one more time? Yes. When you build products and services centered around women, they work better for everyone. Unfortunately, the opposite is not true. 
And so what we're seeing with our product right now is so many guys are coming in or, and, and, you know, are saying that we love this. This is really cool. Can right. we use it? And we're like, yeah, the point is to be inclusive and to think about something differently. with her first center K too, where yeah. men are like, hey, can, can I be here? And I'm like, as long as you're chill. Yes. yes you can 100% exactly. be here. We want you here. Yeah. I mean, the allyship is so right. important. If you're being a dick, no, you are not welcome. <laughs> but no. Yeah. Exactly. Because like, everything else is super bro and I don't want to be a bro. And I'm like, welcome. <laughs> welcome. No bros allowed yes, here. Yes. I love it. Yeah. So I um, so I was thinking about this. I actually was washing hands next to a woman in a restroom, um, which is relevant. I add this because this is why we need women in positions of power. Because this happens to guys all the time, right? They're like, I was with my buddy golfing and mm-hmm. I talked about my business idea and right. then it got funded. Talked about stocks or what? Yeah, yeah totally. exactly. And so that's what happened to me was as we're washing hands in a restroom, I, I just spilled out. I was like, I, I think women have this incredible spending power and we're not being Did served you know this by- woman? Um, I mean, briefly, we were colleagues from oh, okay, my summer okay. internship. I didn't know if it was just like a random stranger in an no. airport being like, let's talk oh, about no, no, this, this spending was power. at IDEO, at my MBA summer oh, internship. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> I we... I just this random random no, where you're just no. like, hey, can I pitch you my business? <laughs> no, this was okay, within the confines of my, my internship. <laughs> um, but yeah, she was asking me how my internship was going, and I said... It's fine. However, I just feel there is a huge opportunity to help women step into their financial power. Um, and she said, I mean, have you thought about anything else? And I was like, I, I have experience building credit cards. Building credit is a huge issue. I built most of the most popular rewards cards on the market. So I right. think I could do something that could really stand for something meaningful and reward women's spend. And she said, well, I'm a part of the investment committee. Do you want to pitch to the investment committee? Oh, yeah. And it's one of those, you know, in movies, those like moments that can just like change the trajectory of your life. I didn't think because probably if I thought more, I would have been too scared. And I would have said no. Yeah. But I just said, yeah. And I I pitched the committee and they loved it and they gave me a little bit of seed funding and then I went out to raise the rest of our pre-seed round and you'll appreciate the story. I had been approached by three very traditional VCs who wanted to take the rest of the round, but I said, the whole purpose of this is to get women wealthy and women partaking in the financial system, whether it's, you know, with building credit or sure. whether it's with, you know, being VCs and and having your, you know, having your hands in something like this. And so I ended up reaching out to a bunch of amazing women investors, including Carrie Schwab Pomerantz, who's the president of the Schwab Foundation. Right. Um, and she said, yes, yeah, she invested and 92% of our cap table is women. Wow. Which is a flip. That unfortunately shouldn't be so like jaw dropping, but it that's amazing. It is a flipped cap table. It's usually 100% men. Men, right, right. Right. So, um, yeah, I think being really intentional. I mean, it it was harder for sure. It took me longer, it's 100% but hundred percent harder. Yeah, it, it was a really really good decision. That's amazing. That's so cool. What would it look like if the credit card industry was built for women? Like if we were to tear it all down, we don't know anything. We're like little babies in a utopia. What does it look like if it was built for women? I think about that every day with Sequin. I think you know there are a few things that fundamentally would be different. The first piece is the transparency element. How does this work? How do you make money? What do I need to do to get into this system? Right. What happens at the end of the month? I shouldn't have to listen to, you know, a podcast to know that you, you and shouldn't. your product should tell me right. how this works, right? right? The second piece is education around 
what these products can get you and talking about, you know, what is your next financial goal? Let's work backwards. Mm. Let me nurture you into the system versus what's happening today is women are, you know, first of all, not entering the system at the same rates, but are falling off every step of the way. So if you see from debit to your first credit card, there's so much dropout in terms of, you know, women actually and and minorities. I was going to say, especially in black and brown communities. Exactly. Yeah. Some of them aren't even getting to debit card or bank. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So right. that that's a great point. So going you're you're zero, right? You're right. using cash right. um or and, payday and whatever loan establishments else. to check your Exactly. To, yeah, cash your checks. Exactly. That's a whole other conversation yeah. we could have, but For sure. Yeah, so going from there to debit card yeah. is even a leap and yeah. then debit card to credit card. Debit to credit and then credit to investing and other tools. Right. Right? There's so much drop right. off at each part of the system and so Or basic credit card with like 1% cash back to Exactly. To a yeah. premium travel rewards card, right? right? To, there's Yeah, me at the like the Amex Platinum. Like I didn't get there overnight, right? But yeah, there was the drop off that happens every single Exactly. step you make up the staircase. Yeah. So nurturing you through that, how do you actually get from each of these financial steps? And then the third piece is community. And what we see and and what I think about a lot is how do you make credit and finances, which is traditionally this one single player game, yeah. how do you make it a multiplayer game? Because your finances and every dollar you spend are representative of your values and what you care about. And so being able to share that with others, right? You know, where am I spending? What am I supporting? Like, what's cool this month, right? You know, it could be a a whole gamut of things as well. So making it less of an individual experience or choice and more of a collective choice. Exactly. And having just a safe space for all of this to happen and, and, you know, talk about things because, again, finances are so personal. And it's a reason that, you know, people stay in bad relationships. It's a reason. I mean, gosh, there's so, so much like heavy material around finances. Um, So I think just having that support as well would be different. Totally. So building the algorithm for sequin cards, what are you keeping from Visa and what are you disregarding? So disregarding, let's start there. It's probably... It's probably the easier question. So we don't require a credit score right. for you to get onto our product. Or a credit check, right? Oh, no. so if you're not requiring a credit score, then you're opening up – I didn't even think about this till now um, – because a bunch of you know undocumented people are not able to get – credit cards hypothetically in the country, right? Yeah, exactly. You need an SSN. Right. Um, so I guess that's like a keep, I guess. In the future, I think there's ways around that. This is right. our first product. Um, but yeah, so we don't think that you need to have credit to get credit. And right. so you don't need a credit score. You, um, We don't do a hard pull or a credit check on you. Okay. The only thing that we look for is that you have a few hundred dollars in your bank account and that you've had that bank account for you know a few months at least. So it's not something that was just spun up overnight. And that kind of helps us kind of think about, you know, make sure you're a real person, yeah. essentially. Well, and also making sure that it's not so much that you're like able to pay it back in a way that like we need our money, but more just like that you are financially capable exactly. of taking this next step. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we look for. You know, yeah, we we just make sure you have enough in your bank account to cover that credit line. So you're not in a situation where, you know, the end of the week happens, end of right. the month happens and you aren't able to pay back. So 
yeah, so that's a disregard. Another, you know, on a lighter disregard, one of the pieces that I kept on hearing from women who I spoke with about their existing banking products was they're like, I have a question. Why are all of my banking products black or blue? They're ugly. <laughs> and I said- They are very ugly. And, and I said, you know what? I don't know that, but somehow blue has become associated with power and security. And by mm. the way, blue is associated with the patriarchy, right? And right. so it's a very masculine color. Yeah. Exactly. And and again, I like blue. It's not yeah. it's nothing about blue. I literally but. actually it's funny you say that because I could pull out I carry like three cards on me pretty much at all times. And it's the Amex Platinum, which is like a gray or like mm, a silver. silver yeah. yeah. Platinum, silver. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my two chase cards are both blue. My ink card for my business and my sapphire reserve, which yep. is which is blue. Yep, yep. So our sequin card is huh. actually yeah. coral. Cool. I know. Like I love it. I have it. Yes. It's yeah. a, and actually, funny enough, so one of our tenants at Sequin is co-creation. I didn't want to come into this and say, well, you should want this. I mm. really wanted to talk to a bunch of different women, a bunch of different minorities and say, you know, what do you like? And one thing that came up was coral is a color that looks good on every skin tone. It does. Um, and yes, exactly like your lipstick. I love it. It's <laughs> actually very similar. I'll show you a card after oh, this. Yes. Um, Perfect branding. So I built, I don't know if you know this, the Herfer Center K that like we call it blackberry sorbet internally but <laughs> like that burgundy brand yes, color yes, that is be that is the exact lipstick color i wear all the time and I of course it. i've got like a different different tone on today but like we literally built the brand around that color because we're like we didn't want it to be pink and we were like what color because we still want it to be feminine but yeah again mm-hmm. we were like avoiding pink and yeah. i was like Perfect branding. I know, and your your lipstick is now sequin colored. Yeah, today. so there you go. So yeah, so, like I planned it. <laughs> yeah, so that's the thing that that we're leaving. Um, the other piece that we're leaving behind is just again the lack of transparency. So sure. having the education is really core. The things that we're keeping are financial tools when used responsibly are really powerful, yeah. right? So you know there are some tools that exist in the market that are completely kind of outside of the financial system. And one of the pieces that I thought a lot about when I thought about how to actually help women and minorities get into the system is how do you set yourself up to play within the existing system to at least, again, give yourself that optionality? And so, you know, our line of credit reports to all three credit bureaus, and that gets you credit visible. So, um, I mean, we want you to be able to partake in the system if you would like to. So that's something we're keeping. Totally. Amazing. My last question for you. On the heels of this this question around, like, how is the world different if women have credit? What do you want women, specifically women of color, to know about building their financial lives? And what for you was the biggest aha moment or the biggest confirmation that like, this is what I want to do with my life? When I first started Sequin, I wanted to talk to as many women and as many women of color as I could. And it ended up actually kind of being a self-selecting sample because I'm a woman of color. So I think a lot of women of color felt comfortable talking to me. And I kept on hearing that they wanted to learn more about the system. They really wanted to know, but they felt they lacked confidence in understanding how the system worked. And because of that, they said, again, just like my mom, I don't want to make a mistake, so I don't want to play. 
And what the I, amount of times I hear that, I don't mean to cut you off, but the amount of times I hear that of I don't want to make a mistake, so I'm just not going to do anything at all because it's it feels like such life or death with when it comes to like something as precious as money. I hear that all the time. Exactly. So I think that aha moment was, okay, well, women and minorities do want to be a part of the system, but they just don't. A, have a tool that feels approachable, but B, do not have the education to actually help them get into that system as well. Totally. Um, And so I think the merger of those two is so powerful where you can actually have a tool that is getting you to avoid those gotchas. You don't have to worry, um, but it's doing all of the, the great things that credit can do for you. But also having that education as well and teaching you about how the system works, why it works a certain way, and making sure that you feel confident in the tool that you're using. So I guess I would say the credit confidence is almost as important as the actual credit building because you can can have great credit and still not feel very confident. And by the way, vice versa, which is... (laughs) So um, yeah, I think just the, the combination of the both knowing how the system works and actually, you know, being able to to build credit and be a part of that system is really important. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to add or that I uh, didn't touch on? I wanted to talk about the pink tax and the rewards. Yes, let's talk about that. When you say first, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure you know, but what is the pink tax? And um, how does that, of course, affect women disproportionately when uh, compared to how it affects men? So essentially, the pink tax is this absurd cost of womanhood, which basically makes everyday products and services cost more for women 42% of the time. I didn't realize it was that high. I thought it was 30 42 Oh, God. Yeah. And it actually comes out to, on average, about $1,350 a year. But that's more in, in traditional pink tax categories. And the emblem of this has become the razor. So, right. you know, if I'm a man and I'm getting a black or blue or whatever color razor, it's a certain amount. And for a woman, it's pink. And now all of a sudden, it's 42% more expensive. Right. But the other piece that I like to just clump into this pink tax conversation is the other hidden cost to being a woman. And so, you know, we're talking about credit, but also thinking through um, public transportation, right? And, and Thank you. you know, at night, I'm not going to feel comfortable taking the BART. I live in San Francisco. So right. I'm going to take a ride sharing service and that's going to cost me more. You know about the FIRE community, right? The Financial Dependence Retire Early yeah. Community, right? And one of my biggest criticisms and a lot of women identifying people's criticisms of that community is they're like, well, bike everywhere. And I'm like, if it gets dark at five o'clock, and I have to leave work at six, I'm not biking home. I don't have that option, right? I don't have the option of biking home to save money. I know. Yeah. So that, yeah. so, I mean, caretaking is yep. is a other huge part of the conversation. The, um, you know, the gender wage gap is the other huge part of this conversation right. as well. So Tampons being taxed as luxury goods. That is such bullshit. Yes, exactly. The luxury tax on tampons, right? Right. It's just, there's so much around this and and not to mention healthcare, right? For women, it's just so much more throughout our lives. So there are all these hidden costs to being a woman, the pink tax um, being one of them. Yeah. So talk to me about the rewards program. Are you looking to combat the pink tax? Like how does that, how does this work? So I wanted Sequin to be a 
symbol of finding the patriarchy. Sure. And, you know, part of that is being able to pocket some of what the pink tax is. And so essentially, you know, we, in terms of our rewards, I love airline lounge access as much as the next person. You can get that somewhere else. But with Sequin, we really wanted it to be relevant to kind of women's lived experiences. And so we have a really simple cash back. There's no complex reward schemes. um, So you know what you're getting on every dollar you're spending. Um, The second piece is we actually have cash credits in pink tax categories. So if Mm. you use your sequin card on a category that is pink tax, which is actually a lot of categories because unfortunately... Unfortunately, Many categories are pink tax. Yeah. So starting with household goods, retail, beauty, charity, there's Mm. so there's a whole list, subscription services, a whole list. Charity pink tax. I mean, women are, you know, contributing are more charitable. Right, sure. Right. So it's basically just any categories where women are spending more than men um, and then end up kind of being pink taxed as well. Uh, So we give cash credits on that. And then the third piece, um, kind of on the theme of having a product that's very aspirational, I wanted this to feel like a product that meant where women's aspirations are, which are everywhere, right? Sky's the limit. And so on our product, um, we have partnerships with women-founded venture-backed companies, and we – Offer perks and discounts on everything from mental health services Mm. to personal branding services. And so there really is kind of like this aspirational element to it as well. And then we have our development, it sounds like too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, also in terms of the education and some of the sequin experiences, we do credit power hours where we talk about everything related to credit. Like if you couple up, how do you think about credit? If you're about to start a business, how do you think about business credit? There's just so many conversations as well. And of course, just having that community to chat with. So yeah, just combating some of these hidden costs and having a product that really stands for like everything being like a woman is, which is yeah, everything. So amazing. We're really excited about it. Well, I so appreciate you coming on and sharing your thoughts. Where can people find you? Where can people find Sequin? All of that good stuff. Yeah. So we check us out on sequincard.com. We are in waitlist mode, but we are opening it up really soon. Cool. And so folks to sign up will be the first to know. Amazing. Um, and you can follow us on Instagram as well. It's sequin underscore card. Cool. Thank you so much again to Brenda for joining us for this episode. We have linked tons of credit resources, including more information on the sequin card in our show notes. And if you're loving Financial Feminist, and if you got a lot out of this episode, make sure to share this podcast with your friends and family and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. It only takes a few minutes, but if you subscribe and you rate, review, it's the best way to make sure that the mission of financial feminism is spread far and wide. Can't wait to see you next week, Financial Feminists. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Financial Feminist, a Her First 100K podcast. Financial Feminist is hosted by me, Tori Dunlap, produced by Kristen Fields, marketing and administration by Karina Patel, Olivia Koning, Sharice Wade, Alina Helzer, Paulina Isaac, Sophia Cohen, Valerie Oresco, Jack Koning, and Anna Alexandra. Research by Ariel Johnson, audio engineering by Austin Fields, promotional graphics by Mary Stratton, photography by Sarah Wolf, and theme music by Jonah Cohen Sound. A huge thanks to the entire Her First 100K team and community for supporting the show. 
For more information about Financial Feminist, her first 100K, our guests, and episode show notes, visit financialfeministpodcast.com. 